Praise God. Well, as you guys know, we are continuing on in the book of 1 Corinthians, and uh, we're actually getting ready to dive into chapter 15. It's going to take a little bit of a turn. And as I was studying um, what was going on in this chapter, it began to remind me a lot of some of the tests that I've had to take for uh, what I do during the week for a living. So, I work for an IT company, and I've been in IT for a long time. And one of the things that that we have to do in that world, um, college isn't quite as important in that world, but certifications are important. So I have to get certified in all kinds of things, and one of the big ones is Microsoft. You guys all know Microsoft. And one of the most annoying certifications has to do with Active Directory. Probably don't know what that is. It doesn't matter. The point is, is that these tests that we have to take, they provide these scenarios, and what happens is, is you get a scenario and you get a bunch of questions right after another. But if you make a mistake on the first question, if you make an assumption that's incorrect on the first question, that is going to impact every single question after that. You guys ever had anything happen like that where you have to take a test, you, you know, answer one question wrong till the rest of them are wrong right after that? So that's what I'm thinking about when I'm reading this. But you get one, oh, I hated those exams too. Matter of fact, it's the only Microsoft exam that I haven't passed yet. And uh, that was about the time I was getting ready to do that one. I had failed it the first time. It's getting ready to take it again. And uh, uh, that's when really God pressed on my heart that I needed to make a decision. Was I going to focus on IT or was I going to focus on the ministry? So thank God I didn't have to take it again. So, but it's, it's one of those things that that's the, the, the questions that go, they, they impact everything else. It would be kind of like building a house. You guys have heard references in the Bible to cornerstones, right? So particularly back in, in those days when they built the house, the entire foundation of the house was set on the, this cornerstone. And if you didn't set the cornerstone correctly, if it was off kilter just a little bit, then your walls wouldn't run the way that they were supposed to run. The whole house would be affected. It would be off kilter. The whole building would be messed up. And that's exactly what I was thinking about as I was reading this chapter here because Last week, and actually the whole first 14 chapters, Paul was dealing with unity in the church. And what he wanted was the church to have a unified front, to stop bickering with one another, to stop fighting with one another, to stop considering somebody else is more important than somebody else, to get rid of all the cliques and all that stuff that was going on. And he said, we need to have unity. We're, we're, we're one church, one body. We need to stop worrying about that and just focus on Jesus. And then the next thing he goes on to talk about is, is how... The, the other big issue in the church was they're all partaking in their individual freedoms at the expense of others, right? So the, the, the big one that, that was talked about uh, in this particular case was the people to speak in, in tongues. That was the, one of their gifts, one of their, their freedoms in Christ, but they were doing it in such a way that it was affecting everybody else. Another one that you might see today pretty, pretty common is the idea of can Christians drink? You know, and it's one of those things, it's probably not a sin, but it's also not a good idea because what if you have that drink and your friend used to be an alcoholic or they don't have the restraint that you do and they go, well, if he does it, then I can do it. And they start drinking and they become engrossed in the alcohol, they become addicted to the alcohol and they become an alcoholic. Now, because you exercised your freedom, they've stumbled. So Paul says, you know what, I would rather give up all my freedoms to make sure that another doesn't stumble, right? In this case, he was talking about food sacrificed to idols. He says, food doesn't matter to me. It doesn't matter if, it's, if it was sacrificed to idols or not. Food is just food. It goes in the stomach. It provides fuel. No big deal. But in order that I wouldn't make somebody else stumble, I would give up the right to eat meat. I would go ahead and be a vegetarian for the rest of my life. Paul's a good man. I'm not sure I could do that. But, uh, but now Paul is going to start 
with something else that's going on in the Corinthian church. And basically what had happened is, is they, they got a hold of an incorrect teaching and they were begin to propagate it in the church. And Paul wanted to set that straight because this is one of those teachings like that exam that I talk about. If you get this part wrong, you kind of get all of Christianity wrong. This is a big deal, what we're going to be talking about here in a second. And that, that idea that he's going to be dealing with is the idea of, is there or is there not a resurrection from the dead? And we're going to see that there may have been some people that were teaching that no resurrection of the dead doesn't exist. But I want you to know in Christianity, that's kind of one of the cornerstones, the, the core principles of Christianity is that there is resurrection from the dead. So let's go ahead and get started. And verse 15, uh, chapter 15, verse 1, it says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So like I said, it's likely that there are some teachers out there. They're getting hold of some wrong ideas. They're teaching <laughs> the Corinthian church and ministering brothers the wrong idea. And Paul's like, listen, guys. I want to remind you of what I preached to you. He says, I want to remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received in which you stand. I want to remind you what I taught you, because right now some people are teaching some things that I never taught. They're, they're messing some things up. They're getting some things wrong. And he wanted to remind them of the message of hope and salvation that he brought. And what he's going to deal with, this idea of resurrection from the dead, is a core principle of Christianity, what he brought to them. And then he said, I want you to also remind you that you received it. Now, this is critical in Christianity. He says, I want to remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received. See, the thing about the gospel is you can know all about it. You can have heard it since you were a little kid. You can know everything about it. You can know the Bible like the back of your hand. But if you haven't received this free gift of salvation, then you're not going to have the hope, the gospel which you preach. You don't have that, that inside of you. If you don't receive that free gift, then you have nothing. It's critical in Christianity because you can't just know about God. You can't just know about Jesus. You have to receive that free gift through faith and know him personally. Not know about him, but know him personally. There is a difference. It always reminds me, the, the analogy that I think of when I think about this is if, is if I said, hey, I got $20 in my pocket, and it's yours. If you don't get off the chair and come up to me and take it from me, the $20 is still in my pocket. I can give it to you. You can own it. But at some point, you have to come receive that free gift. You have to receive what I've given to you. I didn't really give you $20. Don't get your hopes up. I'm a, I'm a poor white folk. You can't be doing that to me. So these people, not only did they receive this, this free gift, they were standing on it. And I like this too, because not only did they receive it, they, they were making a stand on it. They, were, they believed in it so firmly, they were willing to stand up to opposition to anything coming their way. And that, the, the standing on it means they staked their hope and their salvation on this very thing, this gospel that was preached to them. And if you think about it, in this time, this was not uh, a little deal. This is a big deal back then for the Greeks, particularly for the Jews. And uh, we see it a little bit, or we see it a lot today with, with Muslim, Muslims when they come to the faith. So what happens is, is, is they're probably getting disowned by their families when they receive this gift. And if, if they don't take a stand, they're going to get pushed back. They're not going to remain in the faith. They're probably, 
uh, had like family would disown them. They probably had people that may have even wanted to kill them. This is a big deal for people to step away from the cultural norm, the faith that they're dealing in, and and stepping out into Christianity at that time. And it was a big deal. And the funny thing is, is, is we just don't really see that in the United States today. We don't have any of the issues that other people have in the United States. If you want to become a Christian, you just go ahead and say it. You get to put it on all your forms if you need to. I mean, you can, you can, do, you can tell the world about it. You can put it on Facebook. Yeah, I'm a Christian. And no one cares. No one cares. Your family's probably not going to disown you. You're probably not going to be abused and beat up by anybody. You're probably not going to have uh, people call you names. You're, I mean, really, it's not, there's not that much persecution in the United States at all. To take a stand in the United States as a Christian is really trivial compared to, to probably what they had to do, and particularly in Muslim countries right now, what they have to do to take a stand for Christianity can cost them their life. We won't get in prison. They'll throw them in jail. And likely, shortly after that, they'll execute them for being a Christian. And if they're lucky, they didn't get beat up on the way to the prison. For the most part, people in the United States appreciate and, and allow people to believe however they wish. Now, I know that there's a vocal minority that's making a lot of noise and, and doing a lot of weird stuff, particularly trying to make their way in government and push things through. But for the most part, most people just will let you live how you want to live here. We don't have to take a stand like they do. But they were, they were taking a stand. They were standing in it. They were taking a stand and they believed in what Paul had ministered and preached to them. And then he goes on to say, and it's by which this, this gospel they were taking a stand in, by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. Note the word being in that phrase there. He says that, you are being, did you know this, this is an ongoing thing? Salvation is not a, a one and done thing. You don't just get to say a prayer one day and live your life however you want to live and do whatever you want to do. And, and, you know, once saved, always saved. I can tell you right now, I don't personally believe in the idea of once saved, always saved. Because there are many people who have received Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and then have walked away at a later date. And he says there, you have to, you are being saved. It's an ongoing process. Not in the, not in the sense of you're only a little saved and you're getting more saved, but you are in the process, the state of being saved. As long as you remain in the faith, as long as you hold fast to the word that I preached. In other words, you have to remain standing in the gospel. You have to continue receiving this gift of salvation by faith. And if you don't continue in faith in Jesus Christ, then you effectively walk away from that free gift that you have been given. Some people say that, no, if, if, uh, if, you, if, you, if you received Jesus and then you walked away, then you were never saved in the first place. Paul says that, Unless you believed, and obviously it was, it was the opportunity to believe for some point was there. But if you don't hold fast to the word that is preached, you have believed in vain. You have to hold fast. You have to press on. Like I said, I don't believe in the idea that once saved, always saved. You can't say a prayer when you were, when you were 12 years old and be covered for the rest of your life. You have to continue to believe that he is your Lord and Savior. And the truth is, is that when you believe that, you actually should see something in your life 
to that effect as well, because we're going to talk about in a little while, when you get Jesus inside of you, you're not the same person that you used to be. You are made brand new. And a brand new person doesn't live like the old one. Now, it's true. Nothing can separate you from the love of Jesus Christ. You can read about that in uh, Romans 8, 38 through 39. Paul basically says nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Not death, not life, not angels, not anything. But you can walk away. Just as it was freely given to you, you can freely give it back. Just like the natural branches were broken off and the, 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 the unnatural were grafted back in. That's all of us who weren't Jews. We were, we were grafted in. We can be taken back off, broken off again as well if we don't continue in the faith. But the good news is that the door is always open. If that's you, if you've ever walked away, if you've ever stepped back, the door is always open. You can always come back. He's always there waiting with open arms. The scripture says he's, he's knocking on the door, waiting for you to answer it. And we can once again continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that we've heard. I believe that's from Colossians. And Paul says that. And if you go on to verse 3 uh, and 4, it says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. So here is basically the gospel. This is the gospel that Paul delivered it to him. And I want you to notice the first thing he says, I delivered it to you as of first importance. It is the the most important thing, the gospel that I'm sharing with you, all that other stuff that you might hear about, that's all secondary to the gospel. One of the things that's been going on right now, and I was actually just talking to Hugo a little bit about it this morning, is, is uh, you know, with all the stuff going on with the earthquakes and the fires and the, the hurricanes one after another and the tornadoes and everything going on, people are, are, are talking about how, how God is punishing us or doing all these things. And one, I want you to know that God's not punishing us. Two, God is not trying to get our attention with tornadoes and, and earthquakes because he sent his son 2,000 years ago. To die for you. If that doesn't get your attention, an earthquake's not going to do it. Now, the reality is, is we're living in a time that these signs do point to something. Our world is falling apart, but it's not God actively doing something to us. It's the result of a world that's falling apart because of sin. But the truth is, is that none of that matters. You know, even we're talking about the different prophecies right now that people are are saying are going to come true. Turns out the world didn't end yesterday, just in case you weren't aware. Uh, Supposedly the earth was supposed to end yesterday, and it did not. But even if it would have, even if we knew for certain when it was going to end, none of that matters if you don't have Jesus. That's the important thing. Whenever people talk to me about this stuff, I always turn them back to Jesus. You know, when, when, when Jesus comes back, are the Christians going to be taken up first, and then the tribulation, and then Jesus comes back? Or, or is Jesus going to come back and the Christians stay through the tribulations? And then, you know, all these different things people are so concerned about. Who cares? When Jesus comes back, do what he says and keep your eyes on him. You'll be fine. It's as simple as that. But this is the gospel of, of first importance. He said, Christ died for our sins. Jesus is the most important thing that we can do as Christians. Believe on him and share him with others. Because people in this world are living without any hope. And nothing can fill that gap. Nothing can fill that hope except for Jesus Christ inside of them. And Jesus came. He says, first he he died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. So that's number one. Jesus gave his life to pay the penalty for our sins. 
How many know that there is a price to be paid for sin? There's no way that we can get around that. The scripture says the, the penalty for sin is death. And God is a righteous and just. Some people will say, well, why can't God just turn a blind eye? Because he's a righteous and just God. He couldn't just turn a blind eye because if he did, he wouldn't be God. One of God's defining characteristics is that he is righteous, that he is just. And if he doesn't act on those, then he's not God. So sin has to be dealt with. And the reality is, is that death should have been paid by each and every one of us in this room. But instead, because God loved us so much, he sent his son to the cross for you and I. He sent his son to die for us. And people get upset. Oh, God would send his son. That seems so cruel. I want you to know something that Jesus was God. God didn't just send his son. He sent himself to pay the price for you. Because he loved you. And he knew sin had to be dealt with. It had to be paid for. But he still wanted you. So he sent his son. And Jesus paid the penalty of our sin. It reminds me of the story of the judge who had a really good friend. They, were, they grew up together in school. They were best friends. And his friend went out and did something really, really stupid. And uh, he goes to court in front of him. And everybody's watching the judge to see how he's going to react. How is he going to handle this? Because they all knew that the judge and this guy were really good friends. And they all expected the judge to let him off with nothing, to just turn a blind eye. And they were all shocked when the judge actually they levied the highest fine on this man that he could. He didn't want there to be any issue of favoritism. So they were all shocked when he, when he levied the, the highest fine. But then they were even more shocked that as soon as the judgment was rendered, he got off the bench and he took off his robes and he pulled out his wallet and he paid the fine for the man. You see, justice had to be served. But he took care of it, just like God has done for us in him. Then it goes on to say that he was buried. This is the next important part. Why is this important? Because you don't bury alive people. Jesus was dead. They buried him in the tomb. If you know the story, and and I'm going to run out of time already, but basically he was dead. I mean, they, they covered him in like, hundreds of pounds of, of spices. He was wrapped up in that. I mean, the guy was dead. There's the, the, the Roman soldiers checked it. There's, there's no doubt that he was dead. If you want to talk to me more about that, I can. We can go in a lot more detail, but just trust me, Jesus was dead. And that's important because Jesus isn't some mythological being. He is not an ideology. He's not a, some sort of, of weird thing that we've made up, a, a, a representation or allegory or any of those things. He's not symbolic. Jesus actually lived on this earth. There are plenty of non-Christian secular references to Jesus living on this earth. No, no uh, scholar, no historian that's worth of salt will tell you that Jesus didn't live. He was a real guy. He lived. And he died, and he was killed, and he was buried. And this is that death that he paid, that you and I should have paid. That's also why it's important, because the penalty had to be paid. And then he got, he was scourged all the way to the cross, and he he was in such agony on the cross, that was the pain that we should have suffered. He took that upon himself. But Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, and that's you, and that's me, he endured the shame, he endured the pain, he endured the cross for us. And then it goes on to say that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Finally, and this is what I believe to be the most important part of what Jesus did. 
the most important aspect of salvation is that he rose again. Once again, this is also a historical event. This isn't allegory. This isn't symbolism. This is really what happened. He died. He was buried. He was in a tomb, and then he rose again. And the reality is, if anybody wanted to destroy Christianity in its infancy, all they would have had to do was produce the body of Jesus. And trust me, those Roman soldiers looked. They were looking for him. But the reason I believe that this is the most important part of our salvation is because this is what goes beyond the symptom. You see, we needed forgiveness. How many know that's true? We needed forgiveness. But if all God would have done was forgive us, then we'd still be in the same sorry state that we were before. We would still be in bondage to sin. We would still be broken. We would still be under the the, the bondage of, of sickness and death. All those things would still have a hold on us. All we would do is be forgiven. You know, it's, it's just treating the symptom. It's like when you're driving along in your car and you hear that rattling. That's hey, like, man, there's something wrong with my car. I know, I'll turn up the radio. So you can't hear the sound anymore. That's basically what forgiveness is without the resurrection. We're forgiven, but it doesn't matter because we're going to keep on going on living the way we were. We're going to keep on sinning because we have no choice. We'd still be in bondage to sin. But the resurrection proves that we have a new life inside of us. We were buried and dead with Jesus Christ, but we were risen again to a newness of life. That is why the resurrection is so important. Because it goes beyond the symptoms. It goes, it goes beyond just, just touching base on those, but it actually fixes the root of the problem. And that is this, that we are born into sin. We are broken and we have no way out. We can't live good enough to, to dig our way out of that hole. So Jesus Christ gave his life for us so that we could get out of that hole. And we're not only forgiven, which is good. We need it. Trust me. But we're also made brand new. Amen. And verse 5 through 8, it says, And then he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. <clears throat> so to go on and kind of prove that this actually happened even more so, Paul says, look, Jesus died. He was buried. He was resurrected. And if you don't believe me, he showed himself to 500 plus different people. He says, he showed him to Cephas, which is Peter, and then to the other 12 apostles. And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. You see, a few people can get together and lie about an event. But when you have 500 people together, if what they saw is what they saw, Jesus came back. And then he says, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Why is that important? Why did Paul put that in there? Because Paul's saying, if you don't believe me, go ask him. You know the guy. You know three of them. Go ask them. They were there. They're still alive. That's what I love about the Bible is the Bible doesn't try to, to get around stuff. It doesn't try to wait. When, when these letters were being written, they could have, you know, Paul could have wrote this and then they went, no, Paul, you're lying through your teeth. I was there. That's not what happened. There were plenty of people to discount what was being said, but it didn't happen because these people were all there. These were eyewitnesses that were still alive. Matter of fact, when you're, when you're talking about textual accuracy, the people who study these things, that's one of the things they look at when they were written. Were there people around that could co- co- collaborate, co- corroborate, corroborate, they could corroborate those things. So they're, they're there. People were there. People saw this. This isn't, nobody was like, oh no, that didn't happen. This is, people knew it happened. And it was a historical event 
that no one could, could push aside because they all saw it. Did you know today in the court of law, you can have a single witness's testimony can be used as evidence. But if you had 500 people come in and say the same thing, how many know that it's a done deal at that point? It's fact. Amen? And the truth is, if they could have destroyed Christianity back then, they would have. They would have produced the body. That's the thing that, that I think is the, the craziest because the easiest thing to have done to destroy Christianity in its infancy was to produce Jesus' body. But how many of you know when you have a resurrected body, it's kind of hard to find later? Because he was alive and then he was ascended into heaven. And then verse 9 through 10 uh, sorry, this is the rest of that. Then he appeared to James and all the apostles. Last of all, to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So like we said, over 500 people saw Jesus. And then in verse 9, he says, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Now, Paul considered himself one of the least of the apostles because he was kind of last to the fold. He, was the, he wasn't part of the original 12. He came in afterward. Um, for those of you guys who probably know the story, he had the Damascus Road experience where, where Jesus shows up and says, Paul, what the heck are you doing? Strikes him blind. And, uh, and then after that, he has uh, another guy come and talk to him and say, hey, I came to remove the scales from your eyes. And from that point forward, Paul now who can see begins to serve Jesus, the one he would severely persecuted the church. He was there when Thomas was stoned. Matter of fact, the Bible says he held the coat of the guys who were doing it. And then he was dragging Christians out of their homes and beating them. And he was, I mean, when I think about what was happening back then, he was kind of like the, the Hitler version to the Christians. This was like a Christian Holocaust. I mean, they were going after the Christians. They were, they were going through to kill them, and they're pulling them out of their homes. This wasn't a good time to be a Christian. And Paul was right in the forefront of that. Severely persecuted the church. However, even still, God loved him and extended his grace to him. One of the questions I like to ask people is, is could God have forgiven Hitler? And the answer is yes. There's no sin that is so great that God can't forgive you for. Now, I don't know what happened in the last day of Hitler's life, but it's unlikely that Hitler was saved, even in the last moments of his life. But had he surrendered and asked God to come save him, if he would have asked for Jesus into his life, even though all those horrific things he would have done, he could have still been saved because Jesus paid the price for all sin. Amen? And Paul is not unique in this, having all this grace extended to each and every one of us. We have all done things in our lives where we wonder, how could God love me after that? We've all done stuff in our life and we're like, how could God ever forgive me for this thing that I've done? How could it even be possible? If, if, if God can forgive Paul, he can forgive you. There's nothing that you've done that, that, that makes you spectacularly worse than anybody else. He extends his grace freely to us in spite of what we've done. See, that's the thing we have to get through our head is God doesn't love us for what we've done. He loves us in spite of what we've done. And Paul says, this is grace. <clears throat> but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And this grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. I thought it was not I, but the grace of God that is but the grace of God that is with me. He says, this, this grace of God that was extended to me, it wasn't in vain. Because 
He recognized that when he got saved, something happened inside of him. He wasn't who he used to be. And he understood what Jesus had done for him. He understood the magnitude of what had actually just happened. And he said, you know what? This, this isn't going to be in vain for me. And I'm going to work. He says, I haven't worked harder than any of the other apostles. He says, but not, not just me, but God's grace inside of me. God enabled him to do those things. And I think we can probably agree that he he probably did work harder than the other apostles. He wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. But it was God's grace within him that caused him to be able to do so. It was God working inside of him. You know, I think the reason that many people only attend church just on Sunday but don't live their life like Christians for the rest of the week is because they really don't have a true understanding of what God has done for them. They don't understand what Jesus did for them, how he gave up everything so that we could be made whole. When you understand what he did for you, that he paid the penalty for all your sins, that he made it so that you could have a clear conscience, no matter what you've ever done in your entire life, how could you do anything else but respond in such a way with loyalty and obedience and more importantly, with love because of his love for you? And the reality is, is because of the grace that is inside of me, just like the grace that was inside of Paul, we can accomplish far more than we ever imagined for the kingdom of God because of his working inside of us. In verse 12, in verse 11, it says, whether when it was I or they, so we preached and so you believed. But now here's something that's super important about Christianity and it's super important, super important about serving our God. Paul says, I worked harder than all of them because of God's grace inside of me. I mean, it was pedal to the metal, full bore, always for me. But you know what? It doesn't matter if it was me or them that preached to you. It doesn't matter because Paul understood that it's not the messenger that's important. It's the message. It didn't matter who was preaching this message of love, this gospel, as long as they received it and they stood on it and by faith. That's why the message coming from you or versus the message coming from me is no different. Just because I'm a pastor doesn't give me some sort of, of super spirituality that allows me to preach the gospel more effective than anyone in this room. The truth is you can all preach the gospel effectively because nobody cares about the person speaking it or It's about the message that's being preached. Wayne doesn't save anybody. You don't save anybody. Jesus does. Amen? This is one of the reasons why we believe in working with other churches, even other churches that aren't part of our denomination. Because I honestly believe it doesn't matter who the messenger is as long as the message is right. As long as we're preaching Jesus and him crucified and him rose from the dead and him is the only path to salvation, we can work together. And church, just as I was challenged, I think as a church and all churches should be challenged to ask themselves this question. Am I trying to build my church or am I trying to build his church? And I think if we could answer that question saying we're trying to build his, then it wouldn't matter. We'd work together in all kinds of ways to make sure people heard the gospel. Verse 12 through 14 says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. 
So now Paul just laid out the whole gospel, said this is why it's important. doesn't matter where it comes from, but the gospel is that Jesus lived, he died, and rose again for us. He says, but now we have a problem because some people, he says, if, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, which we talked about as important, right? Then how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? We've got people that are preaching there's no resurrection of the dead in this church. And it's causing a problem because... It's kind of the core tenet of of Christianity. It's us being made brand new in him. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then he didn't satisfy God's wrath. He didn't sit on the right hand of the Father and say, it is finished, which means we're all in our sin. That's what he says. If there is no no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and our faith is in vain. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then why are we here? There's no point. If there is no resurrection from the dead, then we're not saved. Our faith is worth nothing. And it's actually not uncommon today for people who don't believe in Jesus to shake their head at the resurrection. You know, they say, oh, that, that can't be true. No one can, can, can be risen from the dead. And not only are there countless examples in the Bible, but there's also examples uh, and in our world today of people being prayed for and, and rising from the dead, although that's not what this is talking about. This is talking about a resurrection um, at the end of our time. But the truth is, is that many people today think that we're crazy for believing in something like that, which I always find humorous because, you know, they always tell me I'm closed-minded. And I'm like, I believe a guy died and rose from the dead and for me so I could be saved. How, how much more open-minded do I have to be? But uh, the reality is, is that if he didn't die for us, if he didn't, it wasn't raised for us, and we're in a bad kind of place. And things weren't so different back then than they are now. They probably thought they were crazy for believing in something like this. But it boils down to this. If there's no resurrection from the dead, then Jesus didn't rise from the grave. And if Jesus is still in the grave, then Paul, the apostles, and all other disciples' teaching and their preaching is worthless. If Jesus didn't rise, then his sacrifice did not please God. It didn't satisfy God's wrath. And that means regardless of your faith, no matter how great it is, if this didn't happen, then it doesn't matter. It's worthless. And he goes on to say, worse than that, in verse 15, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who all have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. He goes to reiterate the point. She says, not only if if people aren't raised from the dead, not only has our preaching been in vain, but we've been lying about God. We've been misrepresenting who God is and what he said. We've been basically been lying to you this whole time. And your faith is in vain again. And he goes on to reiterate that. If the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ hasn't been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. And all those people that have died who are saved, well, they're still in sin as well. They're perishing as well. And he reiterates that point, the importance of that resurrection. And then in verse 19, he says, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people the most to be pitied. You know, if the hope that we have, this hope 
that is solid, that is firm because God is faithful. If this hope that we have is in something that doesn't exist, then we're lost. We're a mess. If this hope that we have, Paul says that we're to be pitied because we have hope in something that isn't real. It almost seems like it would have better to been to not have hoped in that at all and find out it was wrong or not hope to that at all, than to hope in it and find out that it was wrong. Because we're, the, we're to be pitied even more because we had hope. But I can assure you, church, and we'll see as we press on next week, that our hope in, in, in Jesus and in the resurrection, our faith in him is solid. You know, the thing about salvation is so many people are wondering, can, can we be assured of our salvation? And you can. Because God is faithful. He's watching over his word, ready to perform it. And if he says something, he's going to do it. Jesus has been raised from the the dead. He is sitting at the right hand of his father. He has said, it is finished. Your sins are forgiven. If you've been born again, if you've received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you have been made brand new. You are a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says you are a new creation. If you're in Christ, the old is gone. Behold, new has come. Brand new. And it's not enough to just know about God or know the story or know about it. You have to receive that by faith. But if you will receive that by faith and you are brand new, you're not who you used to be. You're forgiven. You are free. And you have hope that can't be taken away, that can't be torn away. You have a hope for a future. You have a hope for eternity. And God will not disappoint because he is faithful. Amen? Amen. Let's go ahead and bow our head.